Well, you know, we're in our, the second chapter of Genesis here, second, um, second part of the series, and, and you know, these are like the kind of like fun, I think, um, not fun in a trivial way, but fun in the sense of like so much good stuff, so much of what, how much God blessed us and, and, and set things on, on, on a path. And, and, and last week we, we looked at Genesis 1 and, and we looked at where, you know, we saw that the world had been created especially, especially for humanity, that God created it especially for humanity and he created it good. And he created it in such a way that, that, that he wanted human beings not just to, to scratch out an existence, but to flourish. Now, I know that some people, maybe some of you here and maybe some people online are thinking like, that's not, that's not my life. That's not my life. Well, remember, we're talking here about how God started everything. We're talking here about what, what God set us up to do. And in the next few weeks after this one, we'll have to take the journey for the road to the kingdom that goes through the valley of our sin. But today, today we, we get to focus again on the goodness. This tells, you know, tells us so much about God, that he is this all-powerful, this good, this, and then this personal God, and we're going to see more of that today. We, we, see, we see so much about his purpose, that creation itself is in some way a self-expression. It's an expression of his love, the love that, that he has within Father, Son, and Spirit that was perfect within itself, but now expressed outward and for humanity. And this also tells us a lot about ourselves. It tells us that we were actually created for relationship with him. He's a personal God. He created us to be personal beings. He created us for, for relationships with each other. And we're going to see more of that today. And finally, you know, it talks about how he created us for a relationship with the rest of creation. And again, we want to think like not like when, when we're first looking at this, we don't want to think just purely like 21st century, you know, Americans or 21st century people. We want to remember what this was saying back then when this was, these stories were being told and retold and then they were finally written down and compiled thousands of years ago. And, and what to us has become familiar was, was new and radical to them. That this God in this story, he's like no other God. He, he, he didn't win a battle with other gods. And now he's the king of the gods. It's like, no. Before creation, there was only God. He's different. He didn't create humanity to be like toys or playthings or as an afterthought. No, he created humanity with a purpose. And that purpose was in part to be personal and to, and to be just drenched in his love. So many other people at that time thought of their gods as being like capricious, even cruel, kind of like their rulers could be sometimes. But not this God. Some people might have thought that life, existence is just this, this misery, this curse that we have to live under. In fact, we know some of the world religions that, that eventually develop start to have the idea that, that the objective is to somehow escape existence, not this God. And you know, all the talk you have today about, you know, people saying, you know, we, we don't need God or gods or religion. You know, we've matured, we've gone past this. 
I don't want to talk about all the other religions that people want to leave behind, but I want to talk about this story, this God. If we lose this God, there is no basis, not just for purpose, but for meaningful purpose. You see, what else God is doing in this story is he's also showing us what is good. Every time it says, it was good, it was good, he saw it and he said it was good. It's funny, we just kind of read past that. You know, just, okay, all right, all right, God made it, it was good, of course he's good because he's God and he makes good stuff. It's all true. But he's telling us, this is good. This is what I am saying. I am putting my stamp on it. This is good. And when we get to chapter 2, he's going to put his stamp on four more things. Things that hit much closer to home. Because kind of in a general sense, we might think like, yeah, creation is good, nature is good, um, you know, light is good, you know, all these things are good, but they're all like kind of material things. But then at the end, when he starts talking about human beings being made in the image of God, and he says, this is very good, Chapter 2 unpacks that more for us. And it's a message that I think that, that we need to hear and hear again and again because many people, many people live without purpose or they live with a purpose that's inferior to the one that was established by God. They, 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 they want something that's, that's less than good. And sadly, sometimes, and if we're honest, sometimes it's us. Sometimes even as Christians, we, we attribute to God a lesser purpose than what he established for us. And we need to know that this purpose was established by love and from love. But understand this about love. Love is not happiness extended. It's not happiness extended. It is purpose fulfilled. What we think about when we think about love is, is we think like, you know, God's main objective, his main objective, his main plan was that we would be happy. That's really all that he did all this for. He set up the world and all this so we would be happy. And so then we might think like, you know, it's kind of selfish if I'm happy and I'm only happy within myself. And so let me, oh, that's what love's for. Love means I get to bring other people into my happiness. And so we think of happiness extended. It's not it. Love is purpose fulfilled. If we understand God's God's purpose that he established for us, that he ultimately stamps as good, it is when we perfectly love. And remember, we've talked about this before. Love is not happiness extended. Love is not just good feelings. It's not just, you know, I like people. It's this love that is, that extends even to and perhaps I should say, especially to those who are enemies, those who are strangers. It's this perfect love that we know we cannot do on our own. And so we come here to, 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 to Genesis 2, and you know, again, it's different. It's continuing the story that's, that's so different from, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll read like you know, Old Testament scholars and other people that say like, oh, you know, we can trace different, um, you know, Mesopotamian stories and myths 
that, that, you know, that the Bible was just putting together. If that were true, the Bible put them together in such a way that the God who was eventually portrayed in all of these borrowed stories is so different from any, not just a little different, radically different. And see, it's just crazy when I, when I see people say, like, oh, there's traces of this and there's traces of that. And as we talked about last week, this is a God who has no rivals. It's not like he's the most powerful of all gods. He is the only God. It's not like there's other powers in the universe that threaten his sovereignty. There's nothing is even close. This is such a different depiction. And as we talked about before, it's crazy that it's coming from these Israelites. Because one thing people have always known throughout all time, and this goes across cultures, okay? It, it doesn't matter. You can be in China. You can be in you know, the Americas. It goes throughout time that this is true. How do I know whose God is the most powerful? Well, who's winning? Right? Who's winning? If your, if your city's winning, guess what? Your gods are more powerful than my gods. If your people group, your nation, even your dynasty, you know, your dynasty might have lasted for a thousand years and then your dynasty falls. You know why it fell? Because more powerful gods came along. It's always been the concept. And here are these Israelites at the time the story is being told to them and when it's finally being written down. They're like this loose confederation of nomadic tribes, not even with a land to call their own. And they're in one of the most difficult places because it's, it's where three continents meet, for one thing. And second of all, there's all these major powers all around them. And, and they have the audacity to say, our God is the most powerful God at all, of all. And they're, they're not going to say, we're going to prove it because now we're going to be the empire that takes... No. It's what they believe. What's been revealed. It's crazy. And so as we read Genesis 2, and we'll, we'll take it in bits today rather than taking the whole thing like we did last week with Genesis 1, remember, in each one of these things, this is all happening before sin enters the world. This is what God originally designed. So in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. First thing that we see here, before the fall, before sin, is that purposeful rest is a gift from God. Purposeful rest is actually part of God's design. It's not like, you know, Adam, you know, was some early version of, you know, some superhero like Captain America. I can run all day. No, he needed to rest. In fact, it's in, in, in this story, he's going to fall asleep. But it's interesting. When you think about it, you know, I was blessed slash cursed with the uh, ability to ask annoying questions of my Sunday school teachers from when I was very young. And I don't know that I ever asked them this question. I kind of wish now I could go back in time and ask them. But I would want to ask, like, why is God resting? He doesn't get tired, does he? Why is he resting? 
I thought he was all-powerful. Well, you know the answer is God's not resting because he's tired. He's not resting because he used up all his powers to create. It's probably not a, the best word we could use is rest. But it does say that he stopped, and he stopped that, that, that what he was doing, he was creating, and he stopped. He stopped creating. It's kind of interesting because even though we're going to read you know, this chapter, it's kind of giving us the details of the previous chapter, but it doesn't really say anywhere else that he starts creating again. It's kind of interesting. Remember last week we talked about how God not, didn't just create, but he created, he created a self-sustaining creation. He built into creation. He designed into creation that, that things would continue. Where he wasn't having to say like, oh, need more human beings, I'm going to make some more. No, he, he put that in a natural process. And again, that's the whole basis for science. Science is based on the fact that things are not random. And we find here in Genesis this agreement. But he stops creating and he rests, and, and, you know, most people will, will say, you know, why is he doing this, and why, you know, why is this an important gift? And it's, I think it is because it's, it's a model for us. But it's funny, like, a lot of us only want half the model. We only want the rest part. You know, we want to justify, like, you know, taking a break. But first of all, remember... God didn't rest because he was tired. And so the purpose wasn't to kind of, you know, get his energy back. I don't think our rest is for the same reason either. And the second thing is, is that he rested because he had finished what he was doing, what needed to be done at the time. It's purposeful, it's intentional rest. And it comes, of course, because he has a plan. He's not just making it up as he goes. He's not saying, oh, I'll just work as long as I can, and maybe I'll get bored, I'll get tired, I'll take a break. No, he has a plan. This is a road to the kingdom. This is, this is stage one for us. It's purposeful. It's intentional. See, we like the part of just resting, but the part we struggle with is in our own lives, you know, being purposeful and intentional. Now, maybe some of you do it, and if you do, you know, in some ways you're way ahead of the curve and ahead of where I am sometimes. But how many of us on a Sunday start thinking like, okay, next Sunday, that's, you know, it's when we're going to rest again. So what do I need to accomplish from Monday to Saturday so that I can rest on Sunday? If you're like me, if I'm not planning, if I'm just trying to get everything done that I can, and then I can't get everything done, and I still have all these things to do, and then Sunday comes, I might take a break from doing stuff, but I'm not resting. I'm stressing. I'm thinking like, oh man, I, 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 I didn't get everything done. I, I'm, I'm gonna be behind. And what am I doing taking a day off when I'm going to be behind by Monday? That's not rest. It's certainly not good rest. And so purposeful, intentional rest comes from a purposeful, intentional life. And it's not saying you have to finish every project before you can take a break, but it is saying if I've planned, if I've planned then I know that I need to make such and such progress this week. And then the next week, I have the amount of progress I need to make. And if I do that, stress is, is, is much less, if not eliminated. 
I used to talk to students at, when I used to teach college all the time that would have this problem, and I could talk to them because I had the same problem when I was their age, and that is that I was, I was, I, I had a family, I had two or three jobs, I was a full-time student, and, and even when I took breaks, I could never really rest, and it's because I always felt guilty. If I was at the, if I was at the library in my office studying, I felt guilty I wasn't with my family. If I was with my family, I felt guilty that, you know, I wasn't, you know, doing, doing the work I needed to do or making the progress on my PhD or whatever. I always felt guilty. And the only way I could make it go away was, was I, I planned. I had, I said, this is how much I need to get done this week. And, and it's amazing. Then, if I was hanging out with my wife and kids on Friday night, and we were probably watching some Disney movie or something or whatever, or we were, I have all daughters, okay, so it was probably a princess movie. So if we were doing that, I didn't have to feel guilty that I wasn't working on my stuff. I didn't have to pretend to watch, you know, Beauty and the Beast and enjoy it, and at the same, but really be thinking about what I needed to be researching and writing next. Purposeful rest, intentional rest. It's a gift. It's part of God's design. And I think it's because God knows something about us. He knows that there are people that their spiritual gift is resting. Like, that's all they do all the time, right? I mean, it's not really a spiritual gift. I just made that up. But they don't have that problem, but a lot of other people have the opposite problem. They keep going, keep going, keep going until they break. And the way that this rest is, when it's purposeful and it's intentional, is that rest is, it's more about prevention. It's more about being healthy. But again, that comes from purposeful, intentional life. You know, a lot of you know I, I coach running, and uh, you know, I coach uh, Kalani High School, and and, you know, one of the things we have to tell them all the time is, you know, symptoms of heat illness or dehydration, by the time they come, you, you already have it. They're not, they're not warning you it's coming. It's there already. It's too late. And so, of course, we have to, you know, try to help them understand it and, and help them not get to that point. And I think it's the same thing with rest for us. And I think that's why we need it. We need it regular. It needs to be intentional. It needs to be purposeful. If we continue, we see, it says here, these are the generations of the heavens and earth. That always denotes a new section in Genesis. It says, when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the garden the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The part I want to focus on is that part where it says, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. I want to focus on that because I think it gives us this, this second gift that we find that is in God's design. And it's this life. And what we see is this very intimate picture. Again, it's, for us it's hard because, you know, the Bible tells us God is spirit. And yet the Bible uses a, not, a lot of like sometimes metaphors, sometimes analogies, sometimes just descriptions that, that you know, it's hard for us to know. And so we, 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 we want to know like why this description? Why this way? 
Why does it have this where God breathes into his nostrils? And I think because it, it's suggesting, picturing very strongly the intimacy between God and this part of his creation, these human beings. You know, it could have said, and God scooped up some, some breath and threw it, and with his incredible aim, it went right into, you know, Adam's nostril. Again, we would think, pretty awesome God, he's got good aim. But we wouldn't see this intimacy of, of the breath of life being breathed into the nostrils by God himself. Now, I know as soon as you hear the word nostrils, it doesn't sound intimate to you. You know, it's like, you know, we, that's not what we associate with it. It's like, you know, you don't think like, oh, um, you know, um, when, I, when, when we got married, we, right when we said our vows, we then went nostril to nostril. Um, no, we say we kissed or something like that, right? But this suggests the same kind of intimacy that God is coming close to his humanity. Life is a gift of love from God. It's not just a gift, and that's the picture here, that God, he forms, he takes the stuff he already created, and he creates something else by bringing it together. He forms it. Everything else we've heard, it's like God just says, let there be light. There's light. God said, let this happen. This happened. This happened. This is different. He, he gets down there, and, he, and the picture is he forms. He forms us, and then he breathes life into us. What is this telling us? Well, it's telling us a couple of things. It's telling us, for one thing, we're not God. There's no conception here that we're God. There's no conception that even our great rulers or leaders or kings or queens, that they can be God in any way. They're not demigods. They, they weren't birthed from God and human beings. Just about every other culture has some form of deifying humanity, but not this one. It's very distinct. There's God. And there's his creation. Yeah, we're special, but we're not God. Then we also see that, again, God has a plan. And what does he do? He establishes, he establishes a home. He establishes a, a, a world for this special creation to thrive in, to flourish. And in this, particular, in this particular part of the story, it tells us that even within creation, he creates, and he creates this garden. We see, again, life and, and the earth and everything. It's, it's, it's a gift. And it's, and it's a gift that comes from the very heart of God. Well, then we look at this next section, and it says, and this part is suggested in the earlier section, but it says here, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's actually two things here. Um, one of them is, is work. Purposeful work is a gift from God. Again, some people are like, well, you don't know my boss. You don't know my job, right? Well, I'm not talking about any particular job. I'm talking about work that God gives us so that we can help accomplish his purpose. 
work that we do that could be something very specific. It could be something about doing ministry or, or you know, teaching the Bible or doing things like that, but it could also be a lot of other things. And if you believe that the job that you're doing is a job that God has placed you in to do, then indeed it is a gift. We glorify God. We do our work, no matter what the job is, consistent with what the Bible tells us and just consistent with who we are in Christ. Now, I'm going to tell you, not every job is acceptable. I still remember about, I think it was about 30 years ago, I was watching on the local news here. Um, you know, they were doing a story on a, um, a woman who, we sh- how we say, took her clothes off in front of other people for a living. I think they used the word stripper. And what made her unique is, and this is why they did a story on her, which was really sad, of all the, of all the people they could have chosen to do a story, they do it on her because she said, I'm stripping for Jesus. What I'm doing is my ministry. And she used some of this same language. So not every job. I, think, I don't think we have any people who are you know, in the mafia here. Um, if you are, your, your job is not, I don't care how much you do it to glorify God. It's not glorifying God. But we're going to see that our, our work, if it's purposeful, and that if we see it as a gift from God, that it's going to be, it's also going to somehow be, be advancing the kingdom, fulfilling the Great Commission, that even in our job that we have opportunities to minister and to teach. And above all, we do it, we do our work with with great love for God, great love for others. You know, you've heard me say this a lot here, and I have to say it a lot because I forget it. And that is that God blesses us so that we, so that we can bless others. And it's so hard because we forget it because, you know, sometimes we might get a, we might get a promotion, and as soon as we get the promotion, we don't think about, okay, God, you promoted me, you allowed me to be promoted, how is this not gonna help me to bless other people. You might get a raise. You might get a bonus. But how many times do we stop and we say, God, how is this going to help me bless others? How is this going to help me serve others? When we understand that work is a gift from God, purposeful work is a gift from God, what we understand is that all of our work whether it's direct or indirect, it's connected to our faith, it's connected to our relationship in Jesus Christ, and it's done as an expression of our love for God. By the way, each one of these that we've covered already could have stayed on forever, stayed on much longer and tried to understand more deeply. By the way, the one I didn't mention, it's in there, is also law. Law is, God's law comes before the fall. He's already telling Adam, this is what you, you should not do. Simple law just kind of shows you the problem of sin, that it doesn't matter how complicated the law is or how simple it is how easy it is, we'll find a way to break it. But let me go on to this this last gift. It says here in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. By the way, that's his job. That's one of his jobs. He's doing his, one of his first jobs. 
That's a, and it's also fulfilling what we read in Genesis 1 about having dominion. Um, by giving something its name, it somehow gave you some authority over it. At least that's what was thought in this time. But it says, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There seems to be two things going on. There seems to be on one hand, he's naming the animals. But on the other hand, God has him, God is at least, I don't know if, I don't know if Adam's figured this out yet, but God is actually doing this to help Adam understand if he has a suitable helper. Maybe God understood something, something that we see in, you know, I know we, we see it in Texas. Because in Texas, like the typical, stereotypical Texas man, in his world of how valuable things are, you know, there's dog. I think dog is number one. Second is truck. Third might be gun. And then maybe rifle and family. It's down here on fourth or something like that. But it's like this, this thing that maybe he just knew, like if, if God had showed up and said, hey, Adam, you know what? I'm thinking about making, you know, this, you know, this, this other human being. And he's like, no, no, I'm good. I got my dog. And, you know, I don't need anything else. Maybe he knows something about us. But for whatever reason, we know two things are going on here. One, he's naming the animals. Two, it's being demonstrated to him that none of them are suitable. Even the dog. And so he continues, and it says, So the Lord God caused, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, be, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What we see here is that purposeful relationships are a gift from God. Purposeful relationships, specifically here, it's talking about marriage. That marriage is part of God's good design. Marriage is not a result of human sin. That God had always intended for human beings to be in marriage relationships. Think about that. Because I think sometimes, like, you know, we, we kind of get this kind of mixed up. I think that's one of the reasons that, that even in the church we struggle with what marriage is and what marriage is for. We forget that it's part of God's good design. And what, we're, what we see here is, okay, first of all, it says helper. Sounds, you know, kind of functional. But you're like, if, if all that was meant was just someone to help, couldn't God have just like, you know, I mean, human beings can train monkeys. Couldn't God have trained a monkey to help Adam? Why not? Because it's more than just fulfilling some assistant function. As we can see down in, in verses 23 and 24, there is, there is an intimacy there. There are things that perhaps Adam doesn't understand that he really needs, that he's not going to be able to do what he needs to do, fulfill his purpose on his own. There's an intimacy there. There's this, 
this unity. It's where he's, he had earlier said, God had earlier said in Genesis 1, you know, after creating human beings in the image of God, he says, be fruitful and multiply. He's saying this is how. Be fruitful and multiply doesn't mean just go out and, you know, have sex with whoever you want and produce as many babies as you can. No, this is how. Because we're not just trying to fill the earth with a bunch of human beings. It's the road to the kingdom. That's marriage. Becomes so important. And it's part of God's good design. And see, what we find here is, you know, make no mistake, in verse 24, what it's talking about. It's talking about sex. And it says, and what we see here is, that God established sex to be both a symbol of intimacy and actual intimacy. Not just a symbol of intimacy, but actual in intimacy. It's, when it says that he shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Yes, that's symbolic. That is symbolic. It is symbolic of, of, the, of the new unity that this, this husband and wife will have, this new family unit that's developed. It is certainly symbolic. But it's also actual. It's supposed to happen. And this is, again, from the very beginning. And you might, again, so many times, you know, when, when you talk about how God designed things, people go, yeah, but that's not my experience. That's not my marriage. That's not how I understand love or how I understand sex or whatever else. And, and you're, you're right. But remember, we're still in the, the stage, this part where this is what God established. This is what he is saying is good and what is beautiful. It's these two, and uh, you know that, that last 25 says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You have these two who can be completely transparent. There's no shame, not because there's no shame. There's no shame because there's nothing to hide. That, that the two shall become one. It's, it's interesting because that's the, same, that's the same Hebrew word that's used in Deuteronomy 6 when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. It's talking about this, this radical unity. And that's why when you have sex outside the marriage, it compromises the symbol. When you have sex before marriage, it compromises the symbol. The symbol is no longer what it was. It's no longer, it's no longer saying, this is God's design. It's just become a physical act. It's just become an expression of, you know, whatever your concept of love is or, or, or for whatever other reason you might do these things. And this is distinct from the religions of the day. It's distinct from the fertility religions. You're not, you're not having sex to plea with, you know, the gods to, to you know, grow crops. There's no place for temple prostitution as a way to try to like, hey, you know, let's, let's, get, let's get, you know, the gods going so we can have all the stuff we need. No. There's no need to plea with God for these things. 
and certainly not using sex. Instead, what we see here is God's design is to establish a home that will establish homes that will establish homes. God's design, as we've talked about before, has always been to pass down truth faithfully, generation to generation in the home. And to do so in such a way that you raise children that will pass down truth in their homes and raise children who will pass down truth in their homes. And it all begins, it all begins with this relationship, this purposeful relationship of marriage between this man and woman. It's something we know is, is true and that is imperfect as, as, as all of us are. Every society, every culture depends in some way on families. Families that produce families that produce families. It's how we find stability in culture. It's one of the concerning things that's happening in current generations where, where younger people are putting off forming families longer and longer. And the longer you put off you know, doing that, the less concerned you are about stability in your society. Once you have kids, you know, you, you, you're not, you don't have such crazy radical ideas. Let's just blow it all up and start all over. It's like, no, because I have kids now. And I have to think about this more. And we see in so many ways, all four of these gifts are under attack in our society in different ways. The idea of rest, we are busy people who are raising busy children. And I will confess, I was just as bad as anyone else. How many activities can I cram into my kids' lives? How many things can I take them to? So busy all the time. Where's the rest? The whole thing about work, why do we work? Do we work as a way to glorify God? Do we work as a way to, to advance His kingdom? Or are we those who think like, I want to just, you know, just work as little as possible? Or, again, just be, just have this purposeless work and just keep doing more and more and more it's just gotten out of control. What about life? Life, no longer thought of as this gift of love from God. Life that we so casually just cast aside, whether it be through abortion or euthanasia, or sometimes just how we treat each other. How we view other people as being worthless and not being that, that God breathed into them. Maybe even how we view ourselves, that we, we simply just think like life is just about existing day to day. We don't see our breath as being from God. We don't see that anything that we do in our existence is in any way connected to anything greater than whatever's right in front of us. Rest, work, life, under attack, being redefined. And certainly we've seen this with marriage and with families. To the point that it's not just we want to redefine marriage, we want to redefine family. We want to denigrate what the Bible says a family is. We want to put it down. We want to criticize it. Yeah. We see God's original good design. And by the way, it's not under attack because it's new, that attacks are new. It's been under attack from the very, very beginning. 
But when we look at God's original design, what do we see? We see a world that is a gift of love to humanity from the one true God. And we see a world where humanity is given the opportunity to reflect this same love in their relationship to God, their relationships to each other, and their relationship to the rest of creation. We're going to talk again next week about how things go horribly wrong, but this is God's design. I don't know. Sounds like a pretty good world to me. If this is the world we could live in, but we know the world is fallen. So let me ask you this, how about the church? How about us in how we treat one another? That we see this church as a gift of love from God. And that it is an opportunity for us to reflect that love back to him, to each other, and to the rest of the world. What do you think will happen if we start living out that good design, even here in this church? What will heaven be like? What will the kingdom be like? I don't know. I don't know. But I know this, that if rest, work, life, family, if love is part of God's good design, pretty sure that's going to be in the kingdom too.